0: This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard.
1: Hi, I'm Rich Gersten, the founder and managing partner of True Beauty Capital. And what I love about beauty is it's a great sector to invest in, and that's why I built my career over the past eight or nine years, really exclusively focused on investing in the industry. And it's such a great industry to invest in because it's very rare you find industries that are this large, this global, growing at the rates it's growing, expanding the definition, enhancing the size and growth profile by the inclusion of segments like wellness. And so as an investor, the industry is incredibly ripe for investing for its size and growth profile. But interestingly enough, what's also so fascinating about the space is, as you look at it, these small independent brands are consistently taking share from large brands. And those small independent brands often seek capital to grow. Uh, It's a working capital intensive business to, to scale and grow. And so for investors looking for interesting growth brands, beauty also represents a great industry for that reason. And equally as important as an investor, We have to sell the businesses that we invest in and over the years, and I've been investing in it now for almost 20 years, the number of buyers, both private equity and corporate buyers that are focused on acquisitions in the space, make it a ripe area for investors to exit their investments as well. And so as an investor, I love beauty because it takes on so many great attributes and characteristics for successful investment. But the other reason beauty is so great is very rarely do you find an industry that's creates so much loyalty and community among its consumers. It's an industry that makes consumers emotionally feel better about themselves. And there is no shortage of product junkies in the space that continue to buy product and the level and pace of innovation and newness continues to result in more products uh, in the bathrooms of consumers. And so... I've always loved the industry for the uniqueness and attributes of the founders and the creativity. Uh, But ultimately, I'm an investor, and so I love it because I think you can make good investments in the space and reward yourselves and your shareholders in the process.
2: From New York City, you're listening to Beauty Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. Hi, it's Abby Wallach here for Beauty is Your Business. We're so excited to have Rich Gersten here with us today. Hi, Rich.
1: Hi, Abby. How are you?
2: Great to see you. And I have my fantastic co hosts Karen Moon. Hi, everyone. Nice to see you. Hi, Karen. And April
0: Franzino. Hi, everyone. So excited to chat today. So,
2: Rich, we've wanted to get you on the podcast for such a long time, and it's so exciting to finally see you and dig into what's happening in the beauty industry. So let's take you back a little bit in your journey because you've had such a deep history in the beauty category and have really made some fantastic investments and have seen the industry grow by leaps and bounds, even since I've known you, which is probably the past five, six years. Tell us a little bit about your background and, and what you've done, and then we'll talk about where you're headed and what's next.
1: Sure. Let's see where to start. I I really began my private equity career in consumer investing only in 1999 at a firm called Northcastle Partners, which was kind of an early mover in the consumer sector-focused private equity investing arena. And private equity, when I started 27 years ago, I don't even think it was called private equity and everybody was a generalist. There was no sector focus. So even in in my career, our industry, private equity has changed dramatically and and sector focus became something that I think has become more prevalent and common. But uh, in 2002, I led my first investment in the beauty and personal care space when I was a partner at Northcastle In a company called Avalon Natural Products that had two brands, Avalon Organics and Alba Botanica, and and today those would be called clean brands. Back then they were called natural. You know those trends were emerging even in that space 18 years ago. Although those brands were typically found in health food stores, not specialty retailers for beauty. And I invested in that space in 2002, Um, and then in 2004. I invested in a prestige skincare brand called DDF that was founded by a pretty well-known New York City dermatologist called Howard Sobel. And then the founder of North Castle, probably around 2005, 2006, said, Rich, I think you should spend half your time focused on the beauty and personal care space. And I thought he was nuts. I didn't want to spend that much time on the space. There were other things I liked to do. I didn't think it was big enough and would keep me busy enough, but he was the founder of the firm. And so, of course, I decided to spend, kind of allocate half my time towards investing in beauty and building the North Castle knowledge and network and their brand in the space. And then in 2006, I invested in a business called Glow Minerals. It was the third investment I made for North Castle in the beauty space. And actually in 2006, I attended my first Women's Wear Daily Beauty CEO Summit in Florida as a sponsor. For North Castle. Uh, and of course, I was the only private equity investor at the event. I think there were a couple of investment bankers, but I was the only investor. And you know, the last one of those I attended in person was probably 2018. And it felt like there was as many investors and bankers there as there were industry people. So that has changed dramatically over the years. And then in 2007, uh, I left North Castle and went to Catterton Partners, which was the largest consumer fund And I spent four years there, made one investment uh, in the space there called Strivectin. And then in 2007, I joined a new firm that was starting called Tengram Capital because I really wanted to get back to my roots of investing in in beauty and personal care, which is the space I loved and had built good reputation and knowledge and network and track record. And I felt I could do better at Tengram in helping building that presence for them in the space because it's a smaller fund and there's lots of small companies in beauty. And in the eight years, uh, nine years I was at Tangram, we, we made eight investments in the space. And it was the most active industry for our investing uh, at Tangram, and, and was quite successful for us. But earlier this year, after 20 years of investing in the space and the last eight years or so almost exclusively in the space, I decided to go bet on myself at the ripe old age of 54 and trying to create my own firm to exploit what I think is pretty unique subject matter expertise of investing in the space and the the cumulative knowledge and network you build in the one area becomes the asset of value as you invest. Um, And what I thought was incredibly interesting about the beauty industry uh, is the fragmented nature of it and the fact that so many brands are so small and don't have access to capital because most investment funds have minimum check sizes they have to write and therefore Most of the businesses, I used to. I I estimate that you know, eighty to ninety percent of the meetings I would take with founders and brands the day I met with them were too small for me to invest the day I met with them. But I try to build relationship and rapport, and and hopefully they would scale up into my criteria at some point. Um, But unfortunately, as competitive as the space got from an investment perspective, as those brands scaled, there were lots of other investment firms also now speaking to those brands, and bankers hired. It just became an investment of time that didn't necessarily harvest itself into investable opportunities. And so in setting up True Beauty, I'm able to create a dedicated fund focused only on investing in smaller brands, because I think that's the most interesting area of the market and one that's the most underserved from a capital perspective, but probably more importantly, from an expertise and knowledge perspective. And, you know, our pitch to founders is, you know, Let's help you avoid making mistakes you might make left to your own devices, not because you don't know what you're doing, but because we've just seen them get made over and over again over 20 years and we'll just help you. And if we can provide capital with that help, that's even better. But I also still want to be able to do the deals that I used to do that are slightly larger in nature that are too big for the fund that my partner, Christine, and I are raising. And so I also forged a partnership with North Castle Partners, which was an easy Partnership for me to create, given where I started this conversation and my background and experience with them, and so for investments of a certain size, size too large for our fund that's doing smaller deals, I'll just partner with them and leverage their existing fund and their investment team and, and continue to pursue investments on a larger scale for them, really in an advisory capacity, but effectively try and lead those deals for them. And so the ultimate purpose of, of True Beauty was create an entity that can invest in anything in the space beauty, wellness, and personal care, as we define it, regardless of size and stage. And you cannot have that broad or flexible and investing mandate as a partner in another person's fund, for sure, but even in a single fund structure. And so the way I embarked on fulfilling that broad and flexible investing objective is to create a True Beauty Ventures fund with Christina Nunez as my partner to do smaller investments and then to partner with the people at North Castle Partners for the larger ones. And it's been great. I've been at it since... Probably April of this year in earnest and have have made great progress
2: that's so exciting you've really had a fantastic journey so I'm a little curious to know now that you're more focused on these smaller brands you know and, and you follow everything in the industry where are you leaning towards and what are you seeing in terms of trending because really there's been explosive growth on the indie side on the big company side I mean it's just incredible what's happened there's you know, not as many barriers to entry yep, as we used to be. Yep, there, are there, there are none. <laughs> Anyone can do anything, which is a great thing. Doesn't mean they'll actually succeed at it, but they can try, right? That's what being yep. an entrepreneur is about. So where are you seeing the trends, Rich? Where, where is it headed? What are you focused on? What are you, what are you predicting for the next, uh, yeah. for 2021, I,
1: 2022? If I had a crystal ball, boy, I'd probably be in a different business. But listen, there's also covid Implications, right? And so you have to understand the current environment, how it's changed in the past year, and how it might be different, at least for some part of 2021 or maybe longer. But you know, we obviously are looking for growth businesses, and from a category perspective, clearly categories like makeup and fragrance are not doing as well as categories like skin and hair, and even subcategories with skin and hair might be doing better than the broader categories. And from a distribution. Channel perspective, obviously, direct to consumer, digitally native brands or brands reliant even on third party dot com retailers more than brick and mortar store for sell through or luxury department store brands who had been impacted for the last five or seven years prior to COVID. You're just looking for those pockets that are experiencing higher growth than others. And that will cycle over the life of a fund will we do a makeup investment? I'm pretty sure we will, but we're not focused on it now. We've also in the venture fund or emerging growth fund included the concept of wellness into our focus area, because I'm not sure what the difference is in some respects between beauty and wellness as consumers are thinking about it now. But at the end of the day, as investors, we're trying to invest in businesses that we think we know best, right? And so some areas we'll just know better than others because of decades of investing experience in the case of my partner, Christina, her operating experience, which has been in skincare and makeup. But we're looking at the expanded definition of wellness that includes ingestibles, sexual wellness, women's health, maternity, fertility stuff, you know, all that stuff also falls within our mandate. But we're looking for things that have good growth trends behind them. And that's clearly going to be impacted in this current environment by the category and the distribution channel.
2: What are your thoughts on the the merger? Well, they're not, I wouldn't say the mergers, but the shop and shop, you yep. know, what's happening at the retail sector. I mean, retail has been sadly really challenged, right? For all the reasons we know. So the new Target, Ulta Opportunity Shop and Shop is kind of terrific. The Sephora Kohl's, what are you thinking about that? Where, where do you think it's headed? And do you think it's a good idea?
1: If you think of the impact of COVID on the industry, and I'll get to that, specific question in a moment, but I think the lead is important. There are a lot of trends that have been ongoing for five to seven years in the beauty industry, be it the shift from department store, to specialty store, therefore the growth of Sephora and Ulta, the shift from brick and mortar to e-commerce and the digital penetration of brands and the launch of DTC brands, the threat of Amazon for beauty. Those have been lingering, you know, call them burning embers for five to seven years. And then this thing called coronavirus came and threw kerosene on all those burning embers, right? It just accelerated trends that were already going on. And so it's not a surprise we are where we are. We just got here faster. And there's other things outside of beauty where it's the same, just accelerated trends that were happening. It's tremendous accelerant. When you look at beauty retail, the genius of Alta although not replicated by any other retailer to date, was it broke down the channel conflict barriers that existed for brands since I've been investing, right? Where mass brands were sold in mass channels and professional brands were sold in salons and spas and prestige brands were sold in department stores and specialty retailers like Sephora or Blue Mercury. And all of a sudden, Alta came along and said, I'm going to put all three under one roof right? I'm going to put chairs in the back. I'm going to have salon brands. I'm going to have mass on the left side of my door. I'm going to have prestige on the right side of the door and we'll see. Now, for a long time, many prestige brands resisted launching at Ulta because they want to be in the same roof as Oil of Olay, right? And so they just didn't want to be seen there. And Ulta broke down that barrier quite successfully. And as department stores continued to contract and close and lose productivity, legacy department store brands said, you know what? Alta might be a pretty good Alternative, and you saw Clinique and Lauder and Lancome, and a bunch of them just launched. Even Mac went into Alta. And so they broke down the barrier of distribution channel conflict and have succeeded in doing so. In in some funny way, Costco has done similar stuff. People just don't think of it in that same vein, but they've got an interesting collection of brands in Costco because the consumer shops there. And so these new deals, I I think the jury is out. Will the Target or Kohl's consumer buy prestige priced? products in an Alta shop or a Sephora shop as it relates to Kohl's, but I think it makes sense at a high level for both sides, that why should Alta and Sephora open up new doors, buy new real estate when there's existing real estate that could house them and and be productive? And for those retailers like Target and Kohl's, and Kohl's in particular has been trying to build a prestige department for quite a while, they can access those brands through the shop and shops as opposed to direct because the brands may be more comfortable doing it. That way, So I think the jury's out on how productive it will be. Conceptually, it makes sense. But ultimately, it comes down to the brand assortment and what brands end up going in there. Um, and I don't know that anyone knows the answer to those questions yet. I don't think those have been merchandised or assorted by by the retailers. And so I ultimately think the brands that end up in there will determine what other brands might be comfortable going in There's a bit of a chicken and an egg. And that could ultimately determine its success. But I give them both credit for trying. I think it intuitively makes sense.
3: I'd love to like delve into some of the new areas you're talking about that you're um, interested, you know, you mentioned sexual wellness, fertility, menopause. There's a lot happening in this yep. space and a lot of entrepreneurial activity, which is super exciting. Yep. Um, finally, you know, some of these lean consumer healthcare or consumer tech, I'm curious if your area of focus is more on the CPG side or are you broadening your scope and how are you thinking about that?
1: No, I, I mean, I, one of the questions I didn't, what answer I think that that Abby said it's just you know kind of what are we looking for maybe less from a trend but in an investment opportunity for us it starts with two things that if we can't get past go we don't proceed further and that's who is the founder right and is there an interesting authentic story and credibility behind that founder and let's talk about the brand that the founders created and is it uniquely positioned differentiated storytelling opportunities all that And if we can't check the brand and founder box, irrespective of category, we don't get past go. And so that's what we look for, first and foremost. But because the whole premise of setting up True Beauty Ventures in particular was to exploit and be able to action opportunities that we historically saw that were too small, because the funds I worked for had minimum investment check sizes, that the purpose is to like leverage experience and pattern recognition and expertise and so it's much easier for christina and i to get to yes on a traditional beauty category than it is one that may be tangentially beauty in the wellness arena but what we're doing is we're seeing a lot of stuff in, in that arena and we're getting up to speed just through breadth of what we're seeing right so the the way you develop a view on what's interesting versus what's not isn't in a universe of one It's in the universe of dozens and in skincare for me, hundreds that I've seen over the years. Right. And so building the breadth of universe of what we're seeing in those spaces, probably before we ultimately invest in them, because we have to have that conviction is part of the process we're going through now. And we're interested in it. We like the dynamics on it. There's great founder stories in there. I started for personal reasons, many of these brands. And so they check a lot of the boxes. We're just building our knowledge base in those relatively new spaces for us to be able to make sure that we can be good partners, uh, first and foremost, but also have the conviction to, to know it's a good investment.
3: And then building on that, you know, I think it's interesting because over the 20 years, I'm sure you've seen, you know, even though you have your investment focus, you probably have seen all stages. Now with so many brands being started, um, particularly in the beauty space, what is it that you see about the brands that do have longevity? Clearly you spoke to the founder and unique positioning, but um, with this stage, like with a new brand popping up almost every other day, what's the secret sauce that you think makes it important, particularly at the
1: early stage? Listen, good product is the price of admission, right? And so if the development of bad product doesn't end up going. You make a trial, but you get no repeat in in, in a, socially sophisticated world, bad word travels fast, right? And so obviously it starts with good product and good social following and community that helps build you know, awareness and drives further trial for the product. And things like clean are probably admission or table stakes now. So there's just certain things that are probably table stakes for us to even consider as investment. But what makes brands interesting is sometimes in your gut, more than it is something specific you could point to, right? I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. About three and a half years ago, uh, I met the founder of a brand called Moon Juice. And I was out in LA and had coffee with the founder and they were looking for $2 million and Tangram didn't do $2 million investments. And then on another trip to LA, I met the president and got along great. And I'm like, "This I don't, Tengram can't invest in this business, but I, I just think it's so interesting. I, I didn't see any financial information. The brand was fun and playful. Amanda's background was interesting. It had great traction in Sephora and Amazon at an early stage. And it was an on-trend category, you know, kind of ingestible wellness. And I just knew it, like two meetings and I knew it was interesting. And if I had a venture fund back then I would have invested two million dollars. Instead I did a small personal investment and did that because it was so interesting. And so there's one where I you know without even digging in too much, And a couple of interactions, you just kind of knew, but but it does have interesting facets that, that we try and leverage in our current thinking, right? Which is the founder and the brand, very unique personality, on-trend category. And we're still very much believers in omnichannel distribution. And one of the things we try and encourage founders to do, which is one of the mistakes commonly made, is don't chase distribution. Just because a retailer wants you and is issuing you a PO or willing to doesn't mean it's good for you or the brand. And keep your distribution tight. Don't have to be direct to consumer only, but pick a partner, one partner in particular that you think can help build your brand exclusively and drive productivity. And secondarily, don't don't launch too many products too soon. You're just going to have stuff that may not resonate and come back, right? And so you can drive sales in the short term through the launch of new products and the launch of new distribution. And two years later, wake up and say, "Uh uh-oh, I don't have anything, right? And so try and be really focused on Productivity redistribution, productivity of your SKU assortment, and aligning on a business strategy or seeing early tractions of that in a brand are the things we look for. And in the case of direct to consumer, there'll be enough metrics if the brand's been around for a year or more to understand, you know, is there retention and repeat and what's the cost to acquire a customer and how loyal is that customer? And if there's any Early traction either on inbounds from merchants at retailers because it doesn't necessarily have to be launched, but you want to know that there's buzz around the brand that's driving at least some inbound interest. Or even better for us, depending on the stage of the investment, you know, is there any traction early on on sell through with your with your retail partner? Should you have one, and you can just tell relatively quickly again based on my years of experience what good looks like in those areas, and just try and get in earlier and help them. The flexibility of our of our fund. It's probably also unique, right? Because our first investment was a top off to a series B round for a slightly more mature company than we would typically identify, but had unique growth prospects and and a launch of a new product that gave it really growthy characteristics. And then the second one we did, which we can't disclose yet, was in a pre-revenue startup, which was below what we would typically say, which is 2 million in sales or a run rate of two million in sales. But both were interesting for different reasons. And because we're just trying to make good investments and leverage knowledge and network in a particular space that allows us to identify and make those good investments, we'll, we'll be opportunistic if something isn't exactly in the fairway as we describe it from a stage perspective. If it's interesting and we can be influential on the outcomes, we'll still do it.
2: I think that's really great advice, Rich. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back soon with Rich Gersten from True Beauty Capital.
4: Here is a sobering statistic. 60% of companies are without long-term internal communication strategies. Do you have one? An effective one? Here's another sobering statistic, companies with communication strategies that work well result in returns to shareholders that are 47% higher versus companies and organizations with poorer communication. 47%. Here's what does work. A communication method that successfully appeals to younger generations while also being adopted by older generations. It's the podcast, and as a result, more and more companies are making use of internally deployed audio content, which closely resembles podcast episodes. If you're a company with at least 50 employees, or you have a large number of strategic partners or retailers you need to regularly communicate with for training, updates, compliance, instructions, and more, we should talk please reach out to us at podcasts at mouthmedianetwork.com. That's podcasts at mouthmedianetwork.com.
0: So Rich, you mentioned that in some cases you'll work with brands ahead of their launch. So in that case, how are you guiding them in terms of where they're positioning themselves in the market, whether direct to consumer or in retail, since that's those doors have opened so much more between prestige and mass, as you mentioned. And then also, how are you driving you know, their product development and anything, as Abby has talked about in the past, their testing with consumers and that type of thing?
1: Yeah, I think as an investor, what we're trying to find generally is something that has some existing proven commercial traction, right? And so in the one-off case where we might invest in a pre-launch business, it's going to have unique reasons, probably specific to the founder as to why we might do that or specific to the strategy. And so a pre-revenue startup investment for us might be something that is going to launch direct to consumer and in an exclusive retail partnership with a big retailer where we know it will scale more quickly and have the support of that retail partner. And so that's not going to be a common occurrence, but but in situations where we think it can scale particularly quickly because it has that embedded partnership in place or is being negotiated, that that is something that would maybe result in us getting in earlier. But to answer your question, most businesses we see and the smaller brands we look at are going to have some semblance of a direct-to-consumer business because in some respects, it's easier to launch there. There's fewer barriers we put up a shopify plus website and have a couple of products and start you know spending a little bit on advertising or building community and so you can drive some semblance of of traction to a website easier than you can other areas and so we would always expect to see some dtc focus but it doesn't necessarily have to be a sole or exclusive focus and again we're believers in omni channel distribution and scaling profitably a pure play direct to consumer business, I still think is hard when it comes to that omni-channel strategy. We always encourage founders again, to focus on small limited group of people, preferably in your home market to start. That's the other, I mean, people chase geographical distribution way too quick. They haven't proven they're successful in their home market and they're already launching, you know, 32 countries with 17 distributors. I mean, it's amazing. Some of the things that you'll see, out there, but uh, I think it's really important to hone your direct to consumer strategy and start to build that relationship one on one with your consumer and the community and the social following that results from that and then be very selective about where you go after that, but be open to, to going into retailers and by the way, retailers like Sephora great brand builders and incredibly strong digital capabilities right it's, it's, i'm familiar with brands during covid you know that that in some cases may have offset their entire Brick and mortar declines at Sephora with Sephora.com growth. You know, some have offset partial losses, but there are brands growing just on Sephora.com at exceptional rates right now. And so I think you have to be very open-minded about your distribution, but be very careful on keeping it tight and picking the right partners that can help you build your brand.
2: You know, I also think it's very interesting today because I am – you know, an entrepreneur and have a young brand in the market is following the market and where you're led because the consumer today is telling you where they want to find you. So it's a very different world, especially in the Gen Z and the millennial generation, how, you know, the paths that we've all carved, that we've lived by to prove out a business and the model that have proven over the years have been successful. But I do think there's a serious disruption around that in some ways because of the community aspect of these businesses and and where they're headed are you seeing that a lot too because i would think you are it's just very interesting um and it's generational
1: yeah i mean smaller brands takes a little bit longer to build that community but there's some other brands that have you know Glossier probably the case study of brands that have built strong community and leveraged that but yeah no the the power of that consumer community as brand ambassadors and evangelists for for your product, buying it, promoting it, referring it is incredibly important to, to scaling. It's why I start with brand and founder at our checklist starting point for our emerging growth fund, because those two things, if right, will help drive that community and following, it, right? It's the affinity that the consumer has to the person or the brand that engages them, much more so than the product initially. The, the product over time might do it, but the emotional engagement or attachment to doing right by a founder with a great story or a brand with a unique positioning. That's what's going to ultimately drive that. But yeah, no, I mean, people are developing products based on inputs on their Instagram feeds. They're soliciting feedback from their audience and their and their consumer community on what products they're looking for from the brand. That's Those are all things that weren't easily done 10 years ago.
3: You know, it's interesting, speaking about the founder, there's been like a new almost like a re-emergence of a lot of influencer-led brands, um, sluttery brands, and they all have different levels of engagement with the actual ambassador of the brand on the product. And also you have like all these other like brand incubators now in the space, right? I'm curious how you think about those and how you filter through those opportunities. I mean, so the brand incubating just being like Beach House Group who helped launch you know, pattern and all that stuff. And there's so many variations. Curious what you think are going to be the winners there.
1: I'm skeptical. Rachel Brown of Beauty Independent did an article on this that I helped contribute to. I'm I'm very skeptical. I'm I'm a little skeptical about the influencer and celebrity brands because I'm skeptical about the authenticity of some of them, right? Just because you have big followings doesn't mean you can build an authentic brand, but well, you could drive a lot of trial and listen, Kylie, we can argue whether Cody paid the right price or not, or should have done the deal, but created value. But I am very consistent about my views on authenticities of founders. And I do get worried that the proliferation of celebrity brands being launched in beauty is, is it's just not consistent with that mindset that I have. And the only analog I can point to in history in beauty is fragrance, right? Where there had been a lot of celebrity fragrance done and they were kind of in and out right they didn't build longevity of brand but they had some successful launches mm-hmm. and there may be a parallel there or not but i i am skeptical about the proliferation of influencer created or celebrity created brands but we'll see there's a lot there's a lot of them and some of them are incredibly well funded Selena Gomez, I think being the probably the preeminent example of a well-funded startup. But she's got mission and purpose behind the brand. And so there might be authenticity there more than and it's not branded after her like JLo, right? It's a different tactic, different strategy. The brand incubator model I'm also skeptical about because you know I like to say that the easiest thing to do in beauty is to launch a brand and the hardest thing to do is to scale a brand. Right. And so What do you do? You create a business model that's all about launching brands, right? Because it's the easiest thing to do. But when you have to scale them, it gets much harder. And more importantly, when you've launched multiple brands Mm -hmm. and you have to scale all of them, that takes more capital. It takes more human resource. It could detract from capital that should be going into one brand because you got to feed another brand. And so the jury's out. I, as an investor, I've had the opportunity to consolidate all my brands under one executive leadership team umbrella, but I've always ran them as separate individual brands in part to make sure that they all got resourced appropriately, which created duplicative functions in certain areas across a portfolio. But they're individual buyers, I think, for each of them, not the same buyer for a portfolio of brands. In fact, Let's see if incubators can sell themselves as entities with a portfolio of brands when there's no natural buyer for a portfolio of brands, at least strategic buyer. And so I think there are inherent flaws in the structure, right? And let's just keep launching brands and worry about scaling them later, I think is a hard business model. You know, you have companies like Hatch and Mesa who are maybe a little further along, and are they incubators or are they not? Their businesses were something else, but now they're creating brands and leveraging infrastructure. So there are hybrids that might Work And both of those owned by private equity firms, which again, reaffirms the private equity interest more than the strategic interest perhaps in those. But I think the jury's out and there's a proliferation of them now. You know, it's like men's brands right now. It's like half a dozen or more men's brands in the market right now. So clearly men's is having a moment again, fueled by direct to consumer in some cases and the emergence of men's brands in traditional mass channels where indie brands have never really had a place to succeed but as an investor when you start to see a proliferation of opportunities coming your way in a particular space you might ask yourself should i be selling or buying right. at this point right and so i think there's a lot of activity and it's our job to cut through the clutter and try and figure out what has sustainable longevity versus not but uh, i am skeptical about both celebrity influencer created brands and incubators for those reasons and it's a
3: good point I was going to ask you a question about what were the mistakes but I think you hit some of them in like what you mentioned around the scaling piece which is the most important right for a brand hardest and, thing to do
1: and you know if you get no
3: overcapitalized fun. or whatever it's like you can take a great brand and a great small business and like ruin it so
1: one of the things we're looking for on the emerging growth fund is alignment with the founders and even the other investors are if there are any on what does success look like from a growth and profitability perspective because i think covid also maybe accelerated the trend of growth at all costs being acceptable to investors but there's a lot of you know investors that came into the beauty space in particular at very aggressive valuations with aggressive growth prospects and ambitions that weren't achieved probably because they were never realistic to begin with but they felt the pressure to achieve them based on the valuation that the investment went in at and so you know, we're not go big or go home investors. We want to grow, uh, but we want to have alignment on what success looks like from a growth and profitability perspective, because we don't want to find ourselves in a situation where we have misalignment with founders and other investors on the cap table.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that's been such an issue in the D C space in the last, yep. you know, a few years and, uh, you know, it, and it just doesn't work out for the founders, you know, at the end of the day. And so, that's a big problem. It doesn't work
1: out for a lot of the investors. Either. Yeah. Yeah. I do
3: know the, Exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think that's a, that's a COVID accelerant that I think is a, hopefully a permanent change in terms of what, what does, you know, and listen, beauty is always going to attract premium values. I mean, I don't know what the function of beauty value was in the Catterton deal yesterday, but we're, you know, we've seen lots of deals get done even during COVID at what I would have said are pre-COVID levels. And so there hasn't really been, you know, for the right assets. Uh, a reduction in, in, in value expectations
2: what are you thinking about for on the you know as we move forward to 2021 and leave 2020 behind what are you thinking in terms of the m a uh, where m; a is at I mean there are so many brands out there today and categories yes. I mean, you know just as the hosts of this a fantastic podcast. We, people every day are trying to, you know, would like to join us, and, and we, can only, yep. we can only have a certain amount of spots. So, what are you thinking really is what does it look like for 2021? Are there going to be big, big M&A deals done? Um, what categories and uh, who's going to make it happen?
1: Well, I, th- I think the interesting thing to look at is how many investments are currently held by private equity firms in beauty right? Because the private equity business model is to sell, right? And so by definition, every investment held by a private equity firm is for sale at any given point in time, depending on the valuation. And there's been a lot of investments made in beauty in the past five years by private equity firms, which to me, by definition, creates a pipeline for future m a Not all of them will get sold, but there's enough you could point to just there alone, right, in terms of what could be available for sale uh, at any point in time over the next 12 or 18 months. And so that's going to exist. Strategic buyers are hard. They're hard to sell to. Uh, They're very particular about what they want. It's got to fill a need in their portfolio and you got to hit them at the time strategically that it makes sense for them. So anybody who thinks selling to strategic buyers is easy just because you might see a deal get announced, it's very, very, very hard. And that's why I actually try to build relationships with people in those organizations, so I have a sense of what's interesting to them and what's not. And if they happen to be interested in any of the brands that I work with in my portfolio, they may know how to find me, which can facilitate opportunities. But I I don't see any reason why the M and A market will. It was quiet for you know probably April through Labor Day, and has heated up again. Um, I don't see that slowing down, and I'm seeing lots of stuff on the Emerging Growth Fund, that's not really m I'm seeing ton, I mean, hundreds of deals there, but even on the partnership with Northcastle, seeing many more deals with them post Labor Day than we did, you know, kind of throughout the summer. And I think that's an indication of pent up demand and people need to do business irrespective of the environment. And I think the other thing that COVID may have impacted for some founders is, you know, maybe maybe I should take on a partner. Maybe I shouldn't have all my assets tied up in the business. And if I can find the right partner, taking some money off the table, you know, God forbid something else happens would be prudent for me. And so I think a lot of founders who've said, maybe I'll wait a little bit longer and now say, you know, maybe it's not so smart to wait. You never know what could happen and having a partner could help me get through that and having a partner could help me be more successful than on my own. And so maybe I'll transact a little bit sooner than I would have because I've been shaken a little bit. And so I think maybe some of that's driving some deal flow through
2: business has at least one big pivotal moment. The moment when you say, okay, we're at this turning point. So then what? I'm Lahari Neil Peretti, founder of LN Accounting Advisor. I hope you'll join me each week on my podcast, Then What? As we talk with successful business leaders who push past their business's biggest, then what moments and succeed in an even bigger way because of effective leadership and solid business practices. It's inspiring and deeply useful information for any entrepreneur. Subscribe to Then What? on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find the best podcasts.
1: hitting the pan. So
2: our next segment is called Hit the Pan, where we spin the proverbial salon chair and it lands on one of the angels in the mix, me, Karen, or April, right. and you're going to tell us what's at the bottom of your pan. So I'm going to spin the
3: chair and it's going to land on Karen. So Rich, you definitely, you know, invest in entrepreneurs, but you're an entrepreneur yourself and you've done it twice. What are some of the lessons you learned about yourself through that journey?
1: Yeah, launching True Beauty is really entrepreneurial. I, I started it by myself. I, I quickly brought on a partner to help me with the Emerging Growth Fund. And we're raising a fund and trying to invest at the same time and, and try and build a firm, right? And all the things that go with building a firm and an organization. And right now, it's just the two of us, but we have obviously plans to scale it. Listen, the most obvious uh, answer to the question is people. You got to surround yourself with the right people. If you're a founder starting something, don't think you can do it by yourself, even if you might be able to surround yourself with good people who are like-minded and aligned with the objective and build a high quality team that fits those characteristics. And so in in asking Christina Nunez to join me as my partner for True Beauty Ventures, that was a huge first step for me in launching that effort. And she and I have worked now four times over 10 years together. And so the devil you know is the devil you know, uh, although she's not a devil. But you got to trust the people to do it and pick people that are going to complement what you bring to the table. Her operating experience complemented my pure investing experience. And then find good partners, whether it's your law firm to help you organize the firm, whether it's a fund administrator that we've hired to help kind of do the accounting and bookkeeping for the firm and capital calls and tax partners and all those different resources that you don't do on your own that you could outsource, that make you better at what you do. Um, and so finding the right partners, the right vendors, the right people, all has to start there.
2: Fantastic. So I'm going to spin the chair again, and it's going to land on me. You know what I'm going to ask you, Rich. I hope You not. know exactly where I'm going with this. There's only one question. How's your golf game? Right now. How is it? Uh, <laughs> Uh-oh, I went on the wrong it, question.
1: It, you know, I... I like the game for the social aspects. I like being outside. COVID's taken away a little bit from that. My wife is the avid golfer with her five or six hole-in-ones. I can't keep track now. And so she's the avid golfer. What's fun for me and what's been really great this summer is my son who's 22 has gotten the bug and has picked up the sport. And even my daughter who's 24 who doesn't play as often as my son enjoys to play. And so the fact that we can do a, a foursome uh, as a family, or the fact that my son and I played so many rounds together this summer as a two summer and a group of other guys with me, that to me is the essence of the game. It's not the game itself, but what the tangential benefits are. Golf, it's a hard sport. I'm mediocre at best. I have good days and bad days like life, but it's a hard, challenging sport. And that's part of what keeps you coming back. But but for me, it's the, the camaraderie and and the relationships that I've developed around the sport that the sport's a part of more than the sport itself.
2: I love your honesty. I'm always following Rich on Instagram. It's long is it some, it's, yes, it is a hard game. A hard
1: so, but I know you Give enjoy it. Fun. You enjoy yeah, it. You know, you know, I enjoy the cigar. The I know exactly I you're what you I, I do. I do.
2: Um, <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. And you know what? It is such a part. It's like anything. It's like business. It's like life. It's really, it's always, always, always about the people. And that's... Yeah,
1: it's. It's, you know, given the environment that we've know, hard to believe it's whatever, nine or 10 months now and getting worse. Yeah. But golf, really, there was no better activity created for COVID than that, right? You're outdoors, you're distanced. (laughs) I mean, it was great. And thankfully, that is a hobby of mine that I do enjoy and had a family to enjoy it with because in that environment, it really, I don't know, it was an outlet I needed.
2: Yeah. A lot of people too. All right. So I'm going to
0: spin that chair one more time and it's going to land on April. All right. So speaking of outlets, Rich, you're obviously a brilliant business mind, but I'm curious if you have any creative outlets that you love, like music or cooking or art or anything like that. Do you have a creative side?
1: Uh, You know, I would say I generally don't have a creative side, although I find myself with some of the brands that I'm invested in perhaps dabbling in the areas I shouldn't as it relates to that (laughs) Um, and having user opinions, even though perhaps they're not grounded in experience. Uh, But I actually think they're well, they're very well received and welcomed by by my executives. You know, golf is a big hobby of mine as, as discussed, you know, starting your own thing requires you to be all in from a work perspective. And I was always all in from a work perspective. And so that, that hasn't changed, but I'm thankful I have that, ethic and habitual pattern because it's required to be successful. And in a covid world I find myself even more connected sadly in some respects cuz you really can't get away. What I will say, you know, I bought a house in Florida probably about 6 years ago which I I haven't used as often as I would like cuz working in New York doesn't didn't allow me to be down here quite frankly, I'm trying to work from home as of yesterday down here for a little bit more of an extended period of time. But what I have found when I come to Florida is how much I enjoy reading. And I never read at home. I never read indoors either. I like reading outdoors and I like reading all types of books from political to to fiction uh, and the like. Uh, I just ordered off Amazon, the story of Leonard Lauder. So I'll I'll merge my business interests with my hobbies for reading shortly. It'll be the next book I start reading. But I I have found that I, I do enjoy reading more than I probably would have imagined. And it is an outlet for me, especially when I'm in Florida, just get outside and away from everybody and enjoy a good book. And as Abby knows, when I finish a book, I post it on Instagram. So everybody knows what I'm <laughs> reading all the time. Um, I'm excited
2: to read that book too. Yeah. It, you know, I think uh, it's an it's, important read for everybody in the beauty yeah. industry. From uh,
1: But I, I, I found I really enjoy it. When you find a good book, you say, I'm going to finish this chapter and go in. And then you start another chapter and you say, and you end up reading five more chapters because you just don't want to put it down. And that to me is the definition of a good book. But I, I would say that's that's something I've realized I enjoy that I didn't really fully realize. But but when I come down here, uh, I really do enjoy it. And I find myself, I'll, I'll be watching TV and you know probably one of the news shows. And here, here's an example. Scott Galloway was on CNN last Saturday and he just wrote a book about coronavirus. And in fact, how coronavirus has accelerated lots of trends that were already ongoing. And if you don't know Scott, he's a genius. I've met him a couple of times in person. But literally, as he's on that CNN segment talking about his new book, I pulled out my phone, I flicked on Amazon, and I ordered the book, you know, from my couch while I was watching the show. That's how easy it is. And I'm still a hardcover reader because I like reading outside. But I just see something on TV. It's interesting. And I'll order the book and, and then I'll read it. And so that, that's been a bit of new hobby for mine, but I really enjoy it.
2: It spends a lot of money like that, Rich. Better sell a lot of deal. You better get a lot of deals done. <laughs>
0: I love that. You know,
1: it's an it's an outlet. It's we're, an outlet. in fantastic.
2: That's terrific.
0: We're all ready to come read in Florida. That sounds fun and relaxing. We're, <laughs> we're all
2: we're all, we're all You're evolving. You're getting some
0: Instagram
3: followers now. <laughs>
2: I think it's great. Well, Rich, it was so fantastic having you and hearing your insights and your depth of knowledge around the industry and your passion and your belief in the emerging talent and entrepreneurial spirit. It's really a tribute to you and everything you've accomplished in your career. So would love for you to leave us with a final thought and share with our audience how they can reach you.
1: Sure. I, to answer the last point, you know, you can reach... Me on LinkedIn is probably the best way on www.truebeautycap.com. We also have a contact us if you want to email us through the website. But LinkedIn tends to be where most people reach me. And, of course, that I'm always checking that, and that's great. Listen, it's a it's a great time to invest in a great industry. I'm so excited to have embarked on my own journey with great people, Around me to to try and do something that I've always wanted to do, but never had that appetite or or risk to do. And ultimately, you as other entrepreneurs on this uh, on this call know that you just the time hits and it's your time to do it and you do it. And so for me, it was my time to do it. I'm not looking back. I, I know we're gonna be successful. I'm excited about it. I think partnering. With founders, and, and by the way, most of the founders we're partnering with are, are female. It's the nature of the beauty industry. Most of the executives I've hired in my past are female. It's a, it's a great opportunity for for me and, and my partner, Christine, in particular, to also really help back smart female founders. And so part of our unstated mission in many respects is that. And so we're just excited to build something from scratch, it's for me. It's my legacy. I tell Christine all the time, no pressure. You're just building my legacy for me. But that's really important for me to help, you know, create something that will last well beyond, ultimately, my my time working in the business. But I think it's something that's institutionable and scalable, and we're we're ready to do it.
2: Fantastic. It's really exciting to hear all about that. We wish you so much good luck, and we know you'll be a huge success. So this is Abby Wallach signing off for Beauty Is Your Business with my amazing angels, Karen Moon.
3: So great having you on the show, Rich.
2: And April Franzino. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Thank you. This has been Beauty Is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network. And find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.